Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hello all, Miguel here. Before we get going today, I want to put out a quick ask. If you have a friend or family member who you think would be interested in working remotely, moving overseas, becoming an expat, or learning about digital nomadism, then I want you to share this podcast with them. We are creating a movement, a worldwide community of people who can live anywhere in the world for more freedom and prosperity. People who are excited to explore this world and connect with people and communities abroad. Being an expat is a very special thing. Not always the easiest, but always rewarding. So my goal is to inspire millions to get out there and explore the world and enrich their lives in the process. But I need your help to do it. So please take 30 seconds to share this interview with someone you think needs to hear this message. They will be grateful you did. So thank you so much in supporting this mission. I appreciate you listening to my show and joining us in our journey. Okay, let's get on to today's interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest is a lawyer turned travel blogger who took 20 trips in 12 months while employed full time. She has been featured in the Washington Post, ABC News, the Huffington Post, as a budget and solo travel expert. She is also the number one Amazon best-selling author. Her debut book, The Affordable Flight Guide, How to Find Cheap Flights and See the World on a Budget. It is in the Reader's 2018 Favorite Award-Winning Books. Please welcome to the show, Jen Ruiz. Jen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mikhail. How are you? Very, very well. Thank you so much. For being here today, we've had a little bit of technical trouble, but I'm really excited for today's conversation. I can't wait to jump in. We're going to be talking about a ton of different things, even some things that we didn't get a chance to mention in the intro, like solo female travel and a couple of other things. But I guess straight off the bat, tell us a little bit about your backstory. How did you get working in this field? How did you decide you didn't want to be a lawyer anymore and you wanted to dedicate yourself to writing and blogging and travel and all these cool, fun things? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really happy to be here. And it's for me always a pleasure to realize that this is my job now, right? So before, when I was a lawyer, I always had this predetermined path in front of me of what of what success, quote unquote, looked like, you know, becoming a partner at a firm or becoming a judge. And so it was definitely a field that people did not expect me to leave, especially after five years, you know, having passed the bar in two different states. So it was something that was not necessarily an investment that people expected me to walk away from. But I found that the moment I started practicing, I had a call towards more creative outlets. That was when I started blogging in general, writing freelance for these different outlets. And I realized that I really enjoyed writing something that wasn't formulaic, that wasn't these legal, you know, just really boring paperwork. I wanted something fun and lighthearted and something I could really enjoy. So I found myself trying to get as much work done in a compressed period of time so that I could spend any leftover time doing those kind of creative outlets. And that's when I realized that I really was loving more what I was trying to do on my spare time than what it was that I was doing with my day job and trying to find a way to remedy that. 
So I started blogging initially. Um, I had a whole different website name. I rebranded twice before I landed on my current site, which is Jen on a jet plane. And that was because I was approached by a travel magazine to write for their travel vertical. And I decided that if I wanted to do that and get paid to be a travel writer, which I thought was just really cool, that I should start going places and covering that. So it wasn't something that I had done up until then, but I was getting more advanced in my career at that time, able to take some vacation days. So I started to dip my toes in the world of travel. And then the year before my 30th birthday, I I took that 12 trips in 12 months challenge, did almost double my intended goal. And by the end of that year, I knew that I really wanted to devote myself to traveling and writing two things that had made me happy for such a long time. That's amazing. So straight off the bat, I guess it's so interesting because, I mean, we've interviewed so many lawyers on this show. I, I kind of half joke half the time that, you know, all of my friends are lawyers or accountants, everybody I know, and I always get free legal work done everywhere I go. But for so many people, I mean, becoming a lawyer is the goal. I mean, that is a lot of work. You must have spent a lot of time in school, a lot of time growing your career and passing the bar in two states. My goodness, um, I can only imagine how much work that was, but then how brave you were to to say, you know what, actually, this is not what I want for my life. I want a change and to refocus your life in a different path. That's amazing. It just became evident the more that I devoted time to the things that I really enjoyed, like writing and the more that I tried to really invest in that area. So I attended my first travel conference as one of the trips that year. And I found that you know, versus the legal conferences that I've been sent to as a young attorney, where I wanted to get there late, and I wanted to hide in the back, and I wanted to leave early, and I wanted to do other things at these destinations, you know, when I was actually at the travel conference, I wanted to sit in the front, and I wanted to take notes, and I wanted to ask questions, and I wanted to network with people. So it was just a whole different level of enthusiasm that really signaled to me that I wasn't in the right profession, that even though I enjoyed you know, the peers that I had in law and the friendships that I've made along the way and the experiences and being able to make an impact in the way that I did, it wasn't ultimately what I was meant to be doing full-time because I just wasn't thrilled about it. I just didn't really look forward to it. And I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, it's work. You, you shouldn't look forward to it or it shouldn't be, but there should be something about it that at least, you know, keeps you going, right? And for me, it got to the point where just winning wasn't enough just by virtue of being like, oh, well, I have this kind of case record. It just wasn't even as fulfilling as something like I made $150 as a travel writer. And that's super <laughs> cool because somebody paid me to like go somewhere and write about it. And that just signaled to me that I really maybe should be putting my efforts somewhere as crazy as it sounded that I, I really had more of a passion for. That's unbelievable. Now, I do want to get off the topic of law, but I do have a couple of quick questions because this is very curious for me. With your background in law, have you found any kind of crossover to your writing that it's been able to help or influence your writing? Or really, were you just starting from scratch and it is a 100% different skill set? It is different, but I found that being an attorney gave me credibility when I was pitching different magazines. When I was first featured in the Washington Post, I think being an attorney definitely helped with that, right? Because they didn't really have a lot of prior portfolio of mine to look at. So at least that gave me a, a level of credibility that I am always grateful for and a level of understanding and for how arguments are made. And even though it's a whole different type of writing, it has to be more informal, a little bit wittier, you know, a including common references when you're blogging or you're doing a travel article than when you're doing a very formulaic facts only um, legal kind of document. So it's, it's different, but also at the same time, I think I was very accustomed to reading, to writing, and I enjoyed it. And I think that that was actually part of what I liked in law, why I was drawn towards litigation because of the storytelling aspect of it. And I think I've always been in love with telling stories and, and being able to get information out to people in, you know, oral um, speeches and through different presentations and, and writing. And so there's always been something that has been a passion of mine. And I just saw it manifested in this career that everybody thought was so prestigious and that I thought, you know, I couldn't go wrong pursuing, but that ultimately I realized wasn't necessarily where my heart was. 
Well, that makes sense because I guess a lot of people, when they think about changing careers, they kind of think that they have to leave everything behind. Now, sometimes people pivot in their careers. They do a different type of something that's based off the original. But at least with yours, like you said, it's a, you're able to add credibility, which is probably not the first thing that a lot of people think of when they're about to change careers. And I have all the time people who decide that they want to leave the corporate world and they want to be an entrepreneur or they want to build a business or they want to live overseas. So it's good to see that actually you were able to use that to your advantage. So it's not, and I, I hate to use this term, but like quote unquote wasted time. You know, some people are always so fearful of this sunken cost of time. Well, I've already spent this much time in school or this much time in my career that, you know, if I leave now, then it's a waste. Well, actually, I think in your story, you show right off the bat that it's not a waste of there is no waste in these types of things. So good for you. That's amazing. And you really never know, right? I think with, I mean, there's an old adage that says it could be good luck. It could be bad luck. That's to be determined, right? Because you never know when you're going to need something later on. I found that as an entrepreneur, I use my legal knowledge all the time in reviewing contracts with brands, you know, and deciding how to incorporate my business and how to move forward in that way. Sometimes you know, in communications, if I have to sign with an Esquire title because people are not responding to me or something like that. Um, so it's been very handy. And I think that there's always room for knowledge and you shouldn't look at anything like a one linear path. I think if anything, you should be free to explore where it is that you want to be and be able to live many different lives in one lifetime, because you don't have to be constricted to just being, you know, 30 years in a company anymore. We don't have those same incentives anymore where you have this pension plan waiting for you when you graduate, like none of those are when you graduate, when you retire, none of those things exist, you know, social security is tenuous and, and small amounts. I represented people in social security law who had been making six figures their whole lives and got maybe like 1500 a month. So at the end of the day, you need to really be concerned about doing what it is you want to do, not what it is that you think you have to do, because the time's going to pass either way. Wow, that makes sense. And I was actually having a conversation with someone the other day about almost this. We were talking about how with retirement, okay, we're so used to people having, you know, one career, possibly two career, and then retiring 60, 65 years old. And I was making the argument that actually, I have lots of clients who come through, I have lots of proposals that cross my desk. And the person is 70, 72 years old, and they're now on their fourth career. And it might not be that they actually need the money, but the thought of retirement and just sitting on a golf course or on the beach all day and doing nothing actually has zero appeal to them. I think that a lot of people, they enjoy building something. And so when you're able to do that, really, it doesn't seem like work. So it's okay if you're on your second, third, fourth, fifth career. If you enjoy what you're doing and it's fulfilling and you're doing it in an honest and ethical manner, then I don't see any problem with that. And that, that, that stereotype of when retirement is and when you should be retired and what you should be doing during it, I think it just makes no sense in today's day and age. So, okay, I want to change gears a little bit. I do want to jump into a lot about the cheap flights and your first book and everything like that. But before we get into that, I really, I'm kind of curious, you did 20 trips in a year. Tell me a little bit about those. Tell me about your adventures. I like adventure stories. <laughs> I had quite a few. So it was 11 different countries, 41 different cities. I went all over the world. So to Thailand, um, where I volunteered with elephants, to Iceland, where I descended into a volcano, to Ecuador, where I swung off the edge of the world, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I went up on the hot air balloon during the International Balloon Fiesta with 300 other balloons at the same time during mass ascension. Um, so I had really wonderful experiences, you know, the south of France, where I frolicked in different lavender fields, Mexico, where I dived at the underwater museum. So a lot of really cool things that I did for the first time, places that I visited that weren't necessarily on my list that I got there because the cheap flights took me there. Um, so I stayed really flexible to that. Aruba was one such destination. It wasn't necessarily on my list, but I found a new route with JetBlue that had just recently launched. 
And since I was in South Florida with the proximity, it was pretty affordable. I got it for about $70 round trip. And that's how I ended up in Aruba, where I did cool <laughs> things like swim with sea turtles. And I explored their uh, desert because they have a desert and cacti and all these different unique dry forest landscapes inside of the island. So it's really cool because it's tropical, but it's also dry. And I just learned a lot. I had Dutch pancakes, you know, they speak three languages there at a minimum, everybody there, um, because it's a territory, but they're also close to South America. They have their own language. So it's really just a fascinating place. And I was able to get there because the cheap flights took me there. So as a general rule, I did like to stay open if opportunities like that came up. Cuba was another example of how I ended up in Cuba for just 48 hours over a Labor Day weekend because I wanted, I found a cheap flight there and I thought, why not? Let me go and see Havana and, and know a little bit about it in case the restrictions ever change and I'm not able to go in the future. So, yeah. so with all of these trips, were you coming back home in between or was this kind of an around the world trip and you went from one destination to another? No, I was coming back home in between. Okay. It was like wow. an amazing race kind of thing. I just, I had a normal life and I just decided I wanted it to be an extraordinary life just for that last year of my twenties, because I wanted it to be, and I've been so good up until then. I felt I deserved it, right? Like I'd already skipped out. Like I'd never done a keg stand. Like I'd already been an attorney by the time I was 24. Like I'd done so many things right. And I just wanted a year of frivolity, but also I had to pay rent and continue like in my regular career path. So I just went nuts and just tried to find a way to fit it all into my existing life. So, and then that was when you say career path, that was when you were still a lawyer or that's when you had already made the transition to travel blogger. No, that was when I was still a lawyer. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I just tried to imagine how much you would have had to balance doing all of those trips and, and you weren't working remotely. You were going back home and going into the office or Wow. Superwoman. It was intense. I got, no, I got a little fried towards the end. I had a, a lump towards the middle where I was like, is this even worth it? I don't know. I had a minor breakdown in Mexico because the storm canceled my um, swimming with extravaganza that I had planned, but I found out I ended up diving as a good alternative to the underwater museum. So I feel like I've worked my way through those things, but had a lump in that kind of middle area where I was like, I don't know. And then also towards the end, I double booked my trips and on one weekend, because I got so excited over the deals, not realizing that I had booked a trip to Morocco and another to Buenos Aires. And um, I ended up going to Buenos Aires and I maybe should have gone to Morocco in hindsight. So I got a little bit crazy towards the end because I was just scrambling to fit it all in, but I have no regrets and I'm happy that I did it, especially now seeing, you know, that I've been grounded for the last year. I definitely don't regret even though it was exhausting, even though it was crazy, even though my mind was all over the place. I'm happy that I traveled and I hope to always do so when I get the opportunity. Well, that is such an important thing. And I, I honestly feel a little bit sad for people for, you know, tying back to retirement when people said, oh, I'll travel when I retire, I'll travel when I retire. And it's like, well, I mean, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. None of us do. And who would have predicted something like COVID where they would just lock all the borders around the world? I know lots of people are saying, oh, you know, when things go back to normal in a couple of months, well, I'm here to tell you that things will never go back to the to normal, to the at least to the way that they were before. That's this horrible quote that I absolutely hate is the new normal. They're trying to normalize all these things. But in reality, it will become more difficult to travel. Now, I've been traveling for 21 years straight. And if something happened to me tomorrow, okay, I will, first of all, I know my family is protected, so that's okay. Obviously, I don't want anything to happen. But at the same end, I mean, I have done everything that I wanted to do in my life. I mean, I've just traveled and traveled and traveled all day long, every day for 21 years. Because for me, that was the greatest thing ever. So good for you for actually... Although it was tiring, although it was difficult, although, you know, you made mistakes and double booked, I mean, at least you kept going and you made this a priority in your life. And you can always remember that, you know, going forwards, that you got to do the things that you wanted to do when you had the opportunity. You didn't just think, oh, it's too much work and just kind of let it pass you by, I suppose. And that's so interesting too, what you mentioned about things being permanently changed. I think maybe it's the same thing when people started traveling and now have like security barriers and the extra 
all of that that really were permanent so it's kind of like we're heightened to another level now and it's really interesting that you mentioned that because it maybe won't ever go back to just everybody being able to be crowded in a space without limitations or things of the sort so we'll see but I hope to still be able to resume travel in whatever form and if it requires testing before or after because I do miss I I do still have a couple of things I wanted to do (laughs) (laughs) had 21 years of it um and so i still have a few things i want to cross off my list and i hope that it's not done for good but yeah i'm definitely very grateful for the travel i've been able to do and and it's wet my whistle for travel moving forward um because it's always worth it makes sense makes sense all right let's talk a little bit about the flights i want to talk about the practicality how were you able to do this i mean what no one does that those amount of flights Unless, unless I suppose you're doing it for business travel and you got an expense account and it's being charged to the company or something like that. But most people don't go on these types of trips and taking these types of flights as much as you do. Can you break that down for us? How did that work? Sure. So first, just started by doing research because I didn't know anything about anything when I started, but I knew that the libraries always rented like every travel book out there um started following scott keys from scott's cheap flights who became uh just one of my partners and and somebody that i really enjoy working with because i think that he has a great program and in terms of flight alerts learned about what flight alerts are and this new model that has come up and emerged now where people find the deals for you and send it to travelers who are maybe less savvy and are just waiting to get deals to their inbox so i learned about mistake fares i learned about travel hacking and miles points. I learned about budget airlines and this a la carte pricing that has come up to suit the demands of people that want to fly for less and don't want to have the full meal included and all of these, you know, the, the bags checked. And now that's really influenced market pricing overall, where major airline carriers like Delta and American Airlines have these more basic models of economy seating that don't include anything to compete with these budget airlines that are offering these really low bare bottom fares that are kind of essentially a build affair. So if you really put a combination of all of that together and you're flexible with your departure airports, you're understanding that, you know, proximity is going to play a part in how cheap you can get somewhere. So Miami to Cuba is going to be really cheap. Miami to Australia, not so much. Um, and that's a flight Miami to Australia where I waited to use points in Miami using for these bucket lists. We'll never go on sale. Super expensive flights like that's where travel hacking can just save you thousands of dollars because you open a credit card, get bonus miles and boom, you have a free flight to somewhere around the world. So if I wanted to go on safari in Kenya, if I want to go to, you know, somewhere really exotic, Central Asia, somewhere it's going to be really expensive, I would save that for points in mind. I would sign up for flight alerts to make sure that I was constantly notified if there were error fares, flash sales, anything like that. And I get now, since I've reviewed so many flight alert programs, I get a dozen different flight alerts of flights in the 300s, 400 range to go almost anywhere in the world. I say be flexible with airports because you never know if there's a $200 flight to Japan round trip from Pittsburgh, like I can get to Pittsburgh for the extra $200 and have a $400 round trip to you know, to get to Japan. So I get the deals from everywhere because major airports are usually pretty easy to get to New York, Chicago, LA, you know, all of these airports you can get to on a budget domestic carrier um, for really cheap round trips. So being flexible with that, being tuned into alerts, hopping on something when it's there and then really planning my and saving my points and miles for those big bucket list trips that, you know, are unlikely to ever go on sale. All of that combined together has been my cheap flight strategy. Okay, so if someone's listening to this and they're saying, wow, this is amazing, Jen, this is so cool. I've never done anything like this, but I want to give it a try. What are the the beginning things, the the skills or the, the techniques or the websites or the, the resources that they need to know about to do it in a practical sense for them and their family and their lives? 
So I definitely recommend signing up for a flight alert program. I like Scott's cheap flights because he has a free trial that people can stay on indefinitely. And most people's complaints with the free trial is that they end up getting charged at the end of the free trial. There's no way to cancel them. And it can be a really contentious point. So Scott's cheap flights has a free trial. You can stay on forever. The only difference from that and the premium is that you only get a percentage of the deals versus premium that get like all the deals, especially the really good $200 flight to Japan deal. So, but you can see what kind of deals come out um, and go from there. He has millions of people on his list. And I think it's a great way as a beginner just to understand because you're going to start seeing these deals. And you're going to be like, oh my God, like $600 to the Maldives. And then you're going to be freaking out. And then you're going to realize that you're going to start getting them more often. And you're going to see what does or doesn't come up frequently, you know, what locations are, are not on sale, how long those sales last, what kind of price ranges you're seeing. So you'll just be more in the know. And again, you can start here completely free and you might even find a deal that's really great for you right off the bat. If someone is going to go through one of these, through the cheap flights, then do you recommend them to take a couple of months to kind of watch the flights that come in so that they get an instinct for what really is a good deal and what is not such a great deal? Or do you think that, you know, the first one that they like, they should just jump on and just go for it? I think anything, you know, three, $400 round trip for a really awesome destination that you've been wanting to go to internationally is worthwhile, especially if it's leaving from your local airport. So don't necessarily wait and assume it'll come back. I think it doesn't hurt to get all of the alerts so that you can be more in the know. And you can also do this through other sites because there's differences between like flight alerts and flight tracking. So flight alerts are just when you're getting deals from all of the different airports, different airfares, different sales, anything that's going on that's dropping air like rates. And then a flight tracking is when you know, let's say I want to go to Morocco. And so you're tracking prices to Morocco. You want to see what that particular route cost and you can get like an entire year's worth of information beforehand so you can see oh prices historically dropped you know and springtime or prices were really good and you know and you can track that fare and you can do that through sites like airfare watchdog you know free of charge as well so you can decide which way you want to go i don't think it hurts to get information either way I'm weary of route tracking or putting in the exact dates that I want to go somewhere because I'm like kind of a conspiracy theory when it comes to internet cookies. And I think that if people know when you're going, then the prices just mysteriously go up. So I like to keep the dates that I'm going a mystery. I don't like to be like track this flight for me a year from now because I feel like the airline's going to be like, ooh, she really wants to go, like extra $200. I don't know. Um, that's just uncorroborated, but I just like to. Well, use Brave, use DuckDuckGo, use those types of software programs, because I really don't think that that's conspiracy theory. I think that actually that is marketing, especially with things like Amazon. They actually have cookies all over the place. Same with Facebook and Google. And they're able to see the amount of search queries that you do on some different terms. If you use a, a browser like Brave, they'll actually stop the cookies from tracking you from one website to another. So there's some good security things, just a little side note to actually make sure that you get better deals on anything and everything that you buy, because everything these days is dynamic. It's not uh, static. So. Absolutely. That's such great advice. For me, it's just something where I noticed instinctively that there was that hike up in prices. And I knew I just wanted to keep my final dates final until the moment that I go to buy. So like for the same reason, when I'm using a popular site, like let's say Google flights, which I love to use because you can put in up to five departure airports and then just like search for different locations around the world. So I can see what's the cheapest way to get to where I want to go. And then I can just browse the calendar for 12 months and the dates will pop up in green for the cheapest days. And I can then kind of base my pricing on that. So I think that there's a lot of different tools that you can use, but it depends on how you want to go about it and how much information you want to give. I don't think you lose anything signing up for flight alerts. I think you can absolutely set up flight tracking if you just want to know more about a particular route or destination. Um, and I think that there's a lot to be learned from different resources in the library, online, in terms of how to best utilize these different programs and points and miles and credit cards to redeem for your benefit. Okay, that makes sense. So I had interrupted you a little bit before because I want to break these down kind of one by one by one. 
So that is the flight tracking. What was the next thing that you think people should be on people's radar to use a really bad cliche? The next thing should be a budget airline on your radar. Beep, beep. Um, so we can have different budget airlines domestically and abroad. Domestically, you have airlines that, you know, people like to make fun of. Spirit, Allegiant, Frontier, Southwest, JetBlue. There's kind of a hierarchy of budget airlines and the comfort and service that you can expect from them. But either way, for me, my mantra is that it's better to spend my money at my destination than just on the way there. So as long as it gets me there, if it's not that comfortable, but it's somewhat reliable and it's just going to get the job done, then that's fine by me. I don't have safety concerns about any of these airlines because they have to be approved by the FAA. You know, they have to pass their own rigorous standards and they get to and from their destinations every day. It's just a matter of how quickly will you get there? How nice will the people be there? You know, how many things will you get once you sit down? All of those things will vary. But for me, if it's a $9 flight, you know, a $19 flight, I've flown on budget airlines. And my favorite is JetBlue. That's like a budget airline that looks like a major airline, but they have so many great deals. And I've flown, flown across the country to San Francisco with them for very affordable rates, under $100 round trip, just $22 using points and miles to redeem for that under $100 round trip price. So really, really amazing. And it's a comfortable airline, the most uh, legroom in coach. So they're great. And I think that you can find which airlines are based near you or that operate out of maybe second tier airports near you. Like Allegiant hits a lot of maybe smaller airports that you wouldn't expect, Fort Myers Airport, you know, versus Orlando kind of thing. And in general, when you're also flying abroad, that's something you keep in mind. So once you get to Europe, it is so easy to get anywhere in Europe. So if you see a $300 flight to Lisbon, book it if you want to go literally anywhere in Europe, Athens, you know, um, even Africa, you know, if you want to go to Morocco, if you want to go to the Mediterranean, if you want to go up to London, like just book it, book the flight to Lisbon, and then you can get from Lisbon to almost anywhere for under $100 round trip on these budget airlines like Ryanair, you know, like EasyJet, all of that. So there's so many great budget airlines now all over the world that you can use. And, you know, some have had better luck than others. Wow Air was one of the ones that I used personally to get to Iceland on their $99 flights. It was 250 round trip and Wow Air has since not, uh, been out of operation, although it's looking like they're going to be acquired again and possibly reopened. Norwegian was one that I swore by, uh, especially for their U.S. routes from the West Coast straight to Europe for $400 round trip. But now they've stopped their U.S. operations with the pandemic. So hopefully those reopen as well. But I think that there's still a lot to be said for budget airlines, particularly for domestic travel, and particularly for travel within regions like Asia and Europe. Okay. When you're quoting all of these prices, is this taxes included or is it like a $99 flight and then $300 in airport taxes and fuel surcharges and every other tax that they can somehow tack on there at the end? That's interesting. And I think I would have to take each of them individually looking at receipts. But I know that for that Iceland trip, the final price was 250 round trip around that, you know, 250.99 or whatever the case may be. So it's not like there were these hidden taxes or fees. Taxes or fees come into account when you're redeeming points or miles, because that is what you'll have to pay. So there's no such thing as a truly free flight. You're, you'll still be responsible for taxes and fees. And that will vary widely depending on where you're going. But it's usually not astronomical. Like there's, you know, I've gotten taxes and fees from Hawaii to Miami. And since that's domestic, that was $5. And I've had taxes and fees from Thailand to Miami. And since that was international, it was like $80 when it was all said and done. But it's never anything crazy. And that's the price that you pay at the end of redeeming your points and miles for a free flight. Because mm -hmm. I remember some flights, like I've been to the UK, God, I don't know, maybe a dozen times, and flying in and out of Heathrow, the taxes there are insane. Like you, you see a flight online and you're like, wow, it's a great price. And then you go to pay for it and it's literally double the price when all of Heathrow's um, charges are included. And because I'm also curious, because you mentioned Ryanair, and Ryanair is very famous in Europe for having these $10, $20, $30, $40 flights around. I've never taken Ryanair myself, but I always kind of thought maybe it was just like a marketing gimmick or something like that. 
it's no gimmick. It's just that people say, you know, Ryanair makes it their mission to make you cry when you're with them. And so as long as you're prepared for that, like, and you understand that it will be a somewhat traumatic experience, you're good to go. And you're like, that's cool. I paid $9 for the trauma and I'm okay with that. But you know, there's just never going to be an easy boarding process. They're probably going to like, you know, make you put your bag into the thing when you're on your way in, which is just what everybody really has anxiety over when you're trying to board. There may not be overhead bin space. You know, I don't know. It's just a, a mess, but it's also... I heard a rumor once that they actually were making plans and, and trying to get approval for standing airlines, like like standing only seating, you know, so that they could get more people in. Obviously, it never went through, but it, like that was literally on the discussion board and trying to get regulatory to allow them to do this. I was like, wow. Correct. That's like really cramming them in like sardines in a can. Exactly. Yes. Because your knees take up too much space. So everybody should just go vertical. So I, yes, I remember that story as well. People are still going to ride Ryan because it takes you so cheap internationally. There's other alternatives. It doesn't have to be with them. Um, I think that there's still other budget airlines that are really comparable and, and don't have these hidden fees. But yes, I think they, they do get a bad rep and I've taken them before. I've flown them, you know, from Athens to Santorini for around that much, like $9. And that was really how much I paid. And it was a relatively simple flight. It was less than an hour. So it, it can be done. I just think you have to kind of also brace yourself when you're doing these things, go really prepared with the size of your luggage, the weight of your luggage. They're always going to try to charge you. I've had them weigh my luggage when I arrive, you know, and then again, before boarding. So like, if you've bought anything, you now owe money for that thing that you bought that like puts you over the 30 pound limit or whatever the case may be. So it can be a pain, like totally can be a pain. But again, if you're just okay with that and you're like, it's cool. Cause I paid $9 and you can go to the happy spot in your head where you're like, I saved the money. Um, then great. But if you're the person who's like, I just want to pay to not experience any of that, then you'll have alternatives as well. Well, it's good to have information from both sides so you really know what you're getting into. What drives me crazy is when people pay the budget prices but then expect to have the luxury five-star service. And it's like, well, no, you chose this. So, I mean, be aware of that. Right. Okay, I have another question here, and maybe this is a silly one. But with all of these techniques, are you able to get deals on five-star airlines or are the deals really only on the budget airlines? No, you absolutely can. So flight alerts will let you know when there are first class, business class deals, all sorts of airlines will have deals. Airfares play a big part into that because there's still humans that are required to input data whenever there's a new price. And so that means that these fares and these listings are still subject to human error. So if somebody leaves off the one from a $1,500 flight, maybe you have that flight for $500 and an airline may or may not honor that. That's why it's called an error or mistake fare. British Airways was in the news uh, a few years back for having sold a bunch, I think $150 or something round trip to Israel. And they backed out of that. And they had a bunch of people that had purchased it and they were not going to honor that airfare. And so they made the news for that. So depending on how many people purchase it, depending on how quickly they catch the error, but those all come up all the time, not all the time, but frequently, I'd say at least once a month on, on flight alert programs for business class and absolutely for high class airlines. He Scott will highlight something like that. Like, oh, this is a five-star airline. Like it's Qatar Airways or something crazy. You know, hop on it while you can. So, and they'll let you know also how long it's estimated to last. Like less than 24 hours and this deal will be gone kind of thing. So I think those are absolutely available. And you can use points and miles to redeem for first-class flights and for flights on all different partner airlines, depending on the points and miles and where you have them. Okay, let's jump into points and miles because... I've had different programs throughout my life based on where I use, uh, based on where I'm living and what the national carrier is that in that area. But what are your tips or tricks or strategies for people who maybe should be collecting points or should be doing it in a more efficient or effective manner than they are today? I think that you can start by earning points even when you're not traveling. So for somebody who's home right now, you know, if you have these loyalty programs that you're set up with through the airlines, like you're part of JetBlue's True Blue, Pro, True Blue program or um, Delta's different frequent flyer program. When you log on, you can access their shopping portal and then get points 
through their partners. So let's say JetBlue previously, I don't know that they do currently, I think only when you shop in the app in the plane, but they before they had a thing where they were offering three times the points for every Amazon purchase you made. So if you purchase $100 on Amazon, you got 300 JetBlue points. So that's something that you can take advantage of when you're shopping online, when you're renting a car, when you're rent, you know, staying in a hotel. And there's a bunch of different shopping portals there that you can use and take to your advantage. So I would just see what the deals are and what's out there and take a note of that. And that's a good way to just start earning points for nothing. There's also ways to do that through different sign-up incentives. Like they'll be like, if you sign up for our, our rewards program, we'll deposit 500 extra points into your account. So no reason why you shouldn't see what's out there and take advantage of that. And then now is also a good time because so many people are doing online spending to open your first travel credit card. I recommend just for ease, because I think it's something that people are really skeptical of and it's important to see a quick win. Um, so I think I, you should just get a travel credit card with an airline that you like, that you know you fly with, that you know wants to go to where it is you want to go and see what kind of point redemptions or what kind of point offers they've had historically. Like, you know, Chase had once offered, I think, 100,000 miles to open up a Sapphire card with them. And that's since not been something that they've repeated because they lost money on that deal. So if you know that your company will likely not offer 100,000 bonus miles, but they offer regularly 60, and maybe you can get it pushed up to 70 on a special offer, then that's something to know. And then sign up for your first card. And usually... It's really great because they give you a bonus, like a big bulk number of, of points and miles that you can use to redeem on a flight to anywhere when you meet a minimum spend threshold when you open up a new card. A lot of people do this so often that they're constantly opening up new cards and closing old cards in the process known as credit card churning because they want to be able to reap the benefits of opening the new cards and getting those points. And now credit cards have become suspicious of this. So they'll have limits in the number of credit cards you can open and, you know, how many times you can reap the bonus awards and things like that. So that becomes a whole game. But I think to get started, just pick one card that you think you can meet the minimum spend threshold, a thousand in three months, three thousand in three months, four thousand in five months, whatever the case is redirect all of your spending onto that card because you'll meet it between bills, between groceries, between gas, you know, it, it adds up and then you can pay it off already because it's stuff that you would have spent anyway. So you can put your money towards paying that card off. And then at the end of those three months, you'll have a free flight and it can be touch and go. I know people also get really skeptical over the redemption and whether or not they really will be able to get a free flight for those points. And I will say that I knew I wanted to go to New Zealand when I had an American Airlines card that I opened up. So I went and I purposely looked for days that were already really cheap on Google flights. So I knew they would cost the minimum number of points, you know, and then I went to go find that. And even then with all of that, I didn't have enough points for a round trip flight, but I had enough points for a flight back from Hawaii. And then I could pay out of pocket from New Zealand to Hawaii. That was like $200. So I ended up getting my flight with points and miles for 38 bucks to New Zealand for $5 from Hawaii to New Zealand, and like $200 for that in-between connection out of pocket. So it was a $300-ish New Zealand flight. It felt like I had, you know, um, like a steal, right? Because people use credit cards all the time and they get something like 1% cash back. And I got like a flight to New Zealand. It's a tangible thing. I'm going, here's my ticket. And so I just think it's worth it for people who are at home right now. Well, and to put things into context for everyone listening, I have done that flight from the States to Hawaii to New Zealand and back again. And I'm trying to think, I believe I probably paid about two and a half, maybe $3,000 wow. for that flight. So yeah, that, I mean, that that's some legitimate savings there. That's we're not we're not talking about going through all this work to say 50 bucks or something. I mean, that's, that's a serious amount of money. So, okay. Amazing. Amazing. So when I also look at some of the point programs, I know that there's the groups, like there's Star Alliance or One World Alliance or these types of organizations. Mm -hmm. Do you advise people to sign up for one of those so that they can be more flexible? Or what's your opinion on that? You have that flexibility already inherently built in because there are partner programs. So a lot of times 
when you're searching on Delta, you know, if it's a partner with Air France or with a flight in, in Thailand, it'll show you those flights in their search results. So it just means that you can redeem those points or miles with other partner airlines. But it's also something where you can look for a card that, that's flexible by nature, like a Chase card that allows you to redeem these points on all different types of airlines. So you're not necessarily limited to any one brand partner. But again, that gets to a point where you're now talking about different ways of redeeming, different ways of saving values and in, in, in transfer and getting like the most bang for your points. I think for beginners, the important thing is to find a card that you know at the end of it, it's going to give you points and miles that you can use. The important thing is just to find an airline that leaves from somewhere that is near you, that goes to where you want to go, and that you can be assured that your points are going to be able to be redeemed with them for something that's going to actually offer you value at the end of the day. Because I think the worst thing that, that happens to people is that they go through all this and then they're unable to redeem their points. So they don't have enough points or they didn't meet the minimum spend threshold or they spent their points along the way on other distractions like a magazine subscription or a discount when you shop on Amazon that comes up on automatically at this point, right? That's all kind of not worth it. Your airline miles should be used on airline tickets because that's really where you will see the most bang for your buck. Um, so I recommend just finding a way to amass them and then spend them strategically. Well, I remember a couple of years ago, I was taking my family back to China and I think that we had two options for airlines to fly on. Now, we were frequent flyers with COPA, which is the national airline in Panama where we live. But at that point, I think one of the airlines was like Air China or something like that, which was part of the Star Alliance. Mm -hmm. So that if we flew with them, we were actually able to use our COPA frequent flyer mile and then our points counted to that where we could have flown with a, a different airline back to China, because right. obviously Copa wasn't flying it, but then we wouldn't have got those points. So just by being a little bit strategic on the airline that we had chose, it actually bumped up. And I mean, we're you know a full family and we're talking the literally the exact opposite side of the world. We were able to get a lot of points for that and a lot of segments, which did qualify us to get the higher status in our... I think like partnership program or platinum program because, and we can get into that. Actually, I do have questions about that, but I'm such a sucker for lounge access that I'm always trying to get gold or platinum or titanium or whatever the level is on the frequent flyer miles so that I get free lounge access everywhere I go. <laughs> Yeah. And there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. So in addition to getting status, you can have that as a perk to one of the credit cards that you open. You know, that's something that you can look for. Some of them include that. And you can also look at different apps that allow lounge access for a certain amount of money that you pay every year just to be part of that club. Um, so there are different ways that you can travel more comfortably on a budget, depending on what range you have. Okay. Okay. Well, it's, it's really interesting, the different points and how they work. It can get really complicated. But I mean, in, in my experience, what I've found is try to pick one points program yes. and then try to pile everything in that. I've tried before, you know, okay, I'll have Star Alliance and I'll have One World Alliance and then I'll have this one over here and that one over there. And you end up basically divvying up your points on multiple different airlines, which means that you really get nothing. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, you don't get any of the benefits that you want. Have you seen similar type of things like kind of focus or what's, what's your opinion? No, I think that's really true. It definitely happens where you can be scattering your energies. And I think that that's why people request certain airlines when they're flying with you know, for business or whatever the case may be. Um, so it, it's up to you. I think you can choose whichever airline that, and, and alliance that you like and then go from there. But in general, I think you're going to find it's slow to accumulate points outside of the bulk signup bonuses. That's, and you know, traveling as well, but you have to travel far to be able, you really have to be going across the world to accrue those points. Otherwise people aren't accruing as many miles from traveling, especially now um, so I think that outside of the bulk signup bonuses, it can be difficult to reach the redemption thresholds. And then you maybe aren't necessarily getting as much bang for your buck, which is why so many people just focus on credit card churning. But absolutely, if you're going to be putting the bulk of your purchases, you know, if you want to be taking advantage of one particular card that gives you three times the points on grocery shopping, you know, if you want to be going and buying gift certificates at Staples, because that's what um, pays you twice the points for buying things at Staples and then you buy a 
um, I don't know, AMC certificate and then go to the movies with those certificates. Like those are all different ways that you can maximize your points on one particular card on one particular brand and absolutely recommend that you do that. Hone in, um, get all your children, everybody family-wise on there to multiply things, take advantage of those promotions and those deals that are happening. Yeah, so there's lots of different ways that you can do that and, and but otherwise it can be negligible and it can be frustrating if you feel like you're waiting to get to that flight redemption and you're like, oh, I spent this much already and I'm still like only at 10,000 points. So that's where the bulk signup bonus is what most people really go after because it's where you get way more bang for your buck. Okay, that makes sense, that makes sense. Now I wanna circle back a little bit on the cheap flights. I'm very curious, during the age of COVID, have you seen more cheap flights available? Are they trying to entice people or have the deals kind of disappeared and what we're talking about today just is no longer really exists? I think there's an anticipation that there's going to be a hike in prices when travel returns so that cheap flights are almost impossible to find. In my experience over the last year, nothing has really changed. Uh, the number of flights have reduced dramatically, but I've still seen a lot of deals. I just haven't been able to personally hop on any of them because I haven't been sure as to whether or not I'll be able to go. I don't want to deal with the pain of having to change or transfer or get flight credits or anything like that. So I just haven't committed to any of the flight deals I've seen over the past year, but I've still seen many of them. I did have friends who booked a flight deal, and I think that that was changed. They were able to get a full refund because when the airline cancels or changes something, they can offer you a full refund fund when even when they significantly change the time on a flight for you you know by two or three hours you can ask for your money back on that so there's ways that you can deal with that i just didn't want to necessarily sign up to deal with that so i haven't taken advantage of any of the deals that i've seen there have still been deals but i think people are anticipating a hike in prices. So that's where, you know, getting points or miles now could be really helpful for you if you're accruing them during their spending that you're doing at home, all these purchases that you're doing online already, because you're trying to limit going out. Um, it could just be a really smart move to have an arsenal of resources that you can go to if prices hike up. And uh, I do think that domestic budget airlines have still been doing really well. The international airlines, like I mentioned, at, le at least the international routes have lessened. Uh, Norway stopped their North, um, Norwegian stopped their North American routes altogether. But there's still other airlines, Allegiant, you know, Spirit, JetBlue, all of these that are still flying. And then I still see a lot of fare sales for Southwest constantly. So I still think that domestically, they're still very viable. So maybe use this as a good opportunity to get as many points as you can so that when things open up you're going to have that tool in your toolbox to use and maybe at the same time start getting accustomed to what the flights are out there on the cheap flight site on these deal websites so you intuitively know better what is a great deal what is not a great deal i mean in anything you're going to have to practice a little bit, you're going to have to do a bit of research and reading. So maybe use this as a good opportunity to do that so that when travel opens up, you're basically ready to go. Absolutely. That's it in a nutshell. Okay. Amazing. I want to talk a little bit before we wrap up today about your opinions on solo female travel, because we've had so many times people have, or I've had so many conversations in my life where people are saying, oh, I couldn't do that because, you know, it's so different. You're a man and I'm a female, therefore I can't do these things. What's, what's your take on something like this? And it absolutely is different. It's definitely different to travel as a female. It's definitely different to travel as somebody who's maybe not ever lived in a big city or ever been outside of their town. Uh, it can just be intimidating and it's okay to feel nervous when you're embarking on a new journey, even if you're somebody who normally feels confident. It's completely okay. It's to be expected. Even if you're excited for your trip, you might still get nervous and you might sit there being like, what's wrong with me? I was actually really looking forward to this. Now I don't know if I even want to go. Um, that happens. It's a big change and you're physically relocating yourself. You're taking yourself out of your comfort zone. Like all of that is to be applauded and you can't sit there and fault yourself for just normal human sentiment. You're always going to be scared before the beginning of something new. And so somebody told me that your beginnings are 
scary, endings are sad, but it's the stuff in the middle that counts. And so you kind of have to just get over that hump and go anyways. And I think that for people that are, for women specifically that are traveling alone, research, you know, knowledge is power. So having as much information as possible. I love being part of female groups online. So on Facebook, there's different groups like the Solo Female Travelers Community, Wonderful that has the Women in Travel Summit. All of these communities are great. And I love to go on there and talk with local women in the area before I go for their recommendations, for anything I should know, you know, and maybe even to have somebody to meet up with when you're there. So there's a lot of resources online of really supportive female communities that help each other to navigate the world. And I think also in general, knowing where you're going, having things planned already, having an itinerary that you're sticking to so that People are expecting you somewhere so that you can send your details of your day and your accommodations to somebody at home who's kind of following up on your itinerary and checking as you go so that you have, you know, your peace of mind and knowing that everything's booked and you don't have to walk around coming up with last minute plans or looking lost or anything like that. So all of that, when you're starting out, can really just add a level of peace of mind that you may already feel that you'll be lacking just by virtue of being someplace new. I've found with a lot of my things in my life that if I'm nervous or scared or worried about something, that's usually because of the lack of knowledge or experience on my behalf. So if I spend the extra time actually reading about it, researching it and planning it and everything like that, a lot of my anxiety will go down. So same as we were talking about before with the cheap flights on what you can do right now, well, is get prepared. So once again, use this as an opportunity to do all this research and to network into these types of Facebook groups, meetup groups and different organizations like that. And like you said, I think that's such a great tip. You know, reach out to people at the local destination and get tips from them. Maybe schedule something so that you get a chance to actually meet up with someone else when you arrive there. Go for coffee or go for a meetup group. We went for a meetup group maybe a week or so ago last weekend, and there was about 20 expats there. And it was so wild to see everybody. And it was every age demographic and every different type of group from all over the world. And it was like, I was so happy to meet these people who are still out there traveling even during COVID times and get their input about what was happening and their trips. And these were digital nomads and perpetual travelers and expats and everything in between. But having that extra knowledge and insight from them made us feel more secure in what we're doing in our decision to continue our travels around the world during the time of COVID. I agree. Community is everything. And even when you're traveling solo, like we just don't live in an isolated bubble. So you will meet people on your travels and you will find community wherever you go um, if you're open to it. And if you really are looking for it and there's ways to do it by being safe and smart and secure and still having a really fun time. So you don't have to let that worry cripple you into inaction so that you sit there and miss out on what could be a really transformative opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I remember when I hitchhiked and backpacked through Central and South America for 18 months. And I would tell everyone, you know, I went by myself. I hitchhiked and backpacked by myself, which is technically true. I left by myself. But at the same time, I was actually meeting people literally everywhere I went that in the entire 18 months, I think I only spent about two, one or two nights, you know, by myself. I always had a friend with me. I always had a buddy. I was always meeting people. And I met lots of solo female travelers during this time as well, who were going through Central and South America and everyone had an amazing time. But, you know, solo is not always solo. You might leave by yourself, but that doesn't mean you need to stay by yourself on your trip. So that's an important distinction, I think, for people. Absolutely. And even if you're not somebody who considers themselves inherently social, I promise you, people, you're just, you're more open to having new experiences when you don't have the buffer of a partner or travel buddy with you. So as somebody who's dropped by themselves in a completely new surrounding, people will approach you and you can use discernment over who it is that you choose to entertain and, and really take on as a friend or a travel companion. But I've met lots of people along the way. I've mentioned in my first TEDx talk, the story of how I ended up in a van in the middle of Greece with like a nine person Italian family sitting in the back seat between like the brother and sister being like, 
I'm pretty sure my mom told me not to get into bands with strangers, but I had good feelings about this one. (laughs) It was a really good family, I could tell. Uh, We were all going to tour the different monasteries uh, that were there in in that little part of Greece. And so we had spent the whole day together already on a tour, uh, walking the area, and we were trying to see the other ones before time was up, and and a taxi would not have gotten us there in time. So they offered to take me with them. And that's something where, again, I I find myself in these experiences, and you have to use your judgment, and you have to really trust that you can discern, you know, when you feel safe in a situation and when you don't. And if you don't feel safe, you don't owe anything to anybody. You can quickly excuse yourself. There's lots of ways that you can bring something with you, like a whistle to make noise, a door stop to, you know, make sure you have extra protection for your door. There's lots of different tools that you can bring that are, you know, TSA approved and that you can bring almost anywhere and that you'll just feel a little safer with. But I find that generally just going with your gut the same way that you do every day when you when you interact with people in your surroundings, in your immediate city and go from there. Amazing. I love it. Jen, thank you so much today for all of your insights and all of your tips with the cheap flights. That's amazing. If my listeners want to learn more about what you do, if they want to check out your writing, where can we send them? Thank you for having me, Mikhail. It has been great. You can find me at jenonajetplane.com. You can also find me on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter under that same handle at jenonajetplane. And you can find my books on Amazon under my author name, Jen Ruiz. Perfect. Jen, thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.